The rain had been heavy overnight. It had been raining for days and still rains this morning. Walking out to your field, the mud squelches under your feet. A thick blue fog suffocates the potato fields. The smell of decay engulfs your nose. The rain began to lift and the wind surrendered. The stillness was unnerving. You pick up a potato, it's rotten to the core. Squeezing it, it collapses in your hand. You're so hungry. You have become a walking skeleton. Indian corn and maize had come, but it would cause horrible stomach pains and diarrhea. You look around the new crop, and it too has begun to die with jet black stalks and leaves. Screams come from neighboring houses. The doctor's carriage passes you. Many were dying from typhus, scurvy and fever. You walk through another field, searching for life, surrounded by black sludge. Losing hope, you scan one more time. Then, in the distance, you see a flicker of green. Life, you think. Walking gingerly over, you kneel down, gently touching the fresh green leaf. Hope fills your body. Finally, this could be the beginning of the end of this horrific blight. This was the Great Famine of Ireland, and this is the good, the bad, and the pure evil. Those in Ireland would call the Great Famine simply the Famine, although there was nothing simple about it. It was a time of huge starvation and disease in Ireland, from 1845 to 1852. The worst would happen in 1847, known as Black 47. During the Great Irish Famine, one million people would die, over a million would leave the country. This caused the population to fall by 25%. Some areas fell nearly 70% during 1841 and 1871. From 1845 to 1855, 2.1 million people would leave the country on ships, steamboats and barks. The main cause would be a potato blight, infecting potato crops all over Europe during the 1840s. With high deaths in Ireland, another 100,000 would die outside of Ireland and would cause much unrest in Europe, revolutions of 1848. The famine would be a watershed moment. The effects would change Ireland's demographic, political and cultural landscapes. From it, two million pe people became refugees and this would spur a century-long population decline. Relations were strained between the Irish and their ruling British government, but with the famine, the strain would worsen. January 1801, Acts of Union happened, making Ireland part of the UK. Ireland would have 105 members of parliament in the House of Commons of the UK. Irish representatives were elected to 28 seats in the House of Lords. 1832 to 1859, 73% of these Irish representatives were landlords or sons of landowners. In the 18th century, a middleman system was created to manage land property. Rent collection would be done by landlord agents or middlemen. This meant landlords got paid without being in direct contact, but this would often lead to tenants being exploited by the middleman. 
Catholics made up 80% of the population. Most were poor and vulnerable. At the time, there was a social pyramid with the English and Anglo-Irish families on top. They owned the most land with powers over the tenants, powers that pretty much went unchecked. Some of these lands were massive. Earl of Lucan would be an example. He alone owned more than 60,000 acres. Many of the landlords would be called absentee landlords. They would live in England. The rest, money collected in Ireland for the poor people with low pay went mostly to England. 1843, the Royal Commission was set up to look at the laws regarding occupation of land. The Commission found that the bad relations between landlord and tenants was huge. Landlords saw the land as income only and they aimed to make as much from it as possible. Landlords would see the countryside as hostile it would only visit maybe twice in their life, if at all. The rents received weren't spent in Ireland, and in 1842 it's estimated £6 million was remitted out of Ireland. The middleman's ability was based on how much they extracted from the tenants. The man was described to the commission and were called land sharks, bloodsuckers, and the most oppressive species of tyrant that ever lent assistance to the destruction of a country. So the middleman would lease large parts of land from landlords on long leases with fixed rents and would sublet when they wanted. They would split the land into smaller and smaller areas to get more and more rent. Tenants could be evicted for not paying rents, which were high, and also evicted if a landlord wanted to raise sheep. A peasant farmer paid rent by working for the landlord while a itinerant labourer paid a short-term lease with temporary day work. If a tenant made any improvements to the property, that would become the landlord's when the lease expired or was terminated, so improvements were rarely done. Landlords in Ireland used the power without a care to the tenants, so the tenant lived in constant fear. In 1845, 25% of all Irish tenants had less than five acres and 40% less than 15 acres. With areas small, the humble potato was the crop chosen to suffice feeding the family. Just before the famine, the British government stated poverty was rampant, with one third of Irish small holdings unable to support their family after rent was paid. Families would live on seasonal migrant work in England and Scotland. After the famine, reforms would happen, making it illegal to divide land any further. 1841 census would show 8 million population. Two thirds of this depended on agriculture to live and rarely got a wage. They worked for the landlords in return for land to grow food to feed their own family. This created a monoculture amongst peasant tenants because only the potato could be grown in enough quantity to meet nutritional needs. Potato was a garden crop at first. It wasn't very popular, but a promotion campaign happened with landowners and members of the Royal supporting and encouraging to plant and eat the crop. So its popularity grew. In the 17th century, it would be a common supplementary food. However, the main diet still remained butter, milk and grains. 70, 60, 
1850, expansion of the economy happened because of the Napoleonic War. This would increase the demand for food in Britain. Tillage would increase so much that less and less land for small farmers was available. The potato would become small farmers' go-to for quick growth on small spaces. By 1800, one in three would have potato as a staple food, especially when it came to the cold, harsh winters. When this dependency on a single crop with just one variant, it would soon be have devastating effects on Ireland and some areas in Europe. Potatoes were essential to the farmer peasant system. The potatoes supported the lower living standard workers. The labourers called it a potato age and would it shape the expanding agrarian economy. Before hitting Ireland, the disease would be known as blight, with two main potato plant diseases being discovered by then. One was called dry rot or taint, and the other was called curl. These were variant of parasites closely related to algae and not fungus. So in 1851, Census of Ireland commissioners showed 24 failings in potato crops that went back to 1728 and would vary in se severity. Disease and frost were the main culprits in 1739, 1740, 1770, and 1800, and 1807. Then in 1821 and 1822, 1835 potatoes also failed in Ulster. Exactly when the blight hit Europe is still unknown, but it's thought to be 1844. The origin of the pathogen is Tulku Valley, Mexico. It spread in North America and then Europe. So in 1844, newspapers in Ireland began to report on the disease in the potato crops in America for two years. 1843 and 1844, the blight destroyed the crop in eastern US. These diseased potatoes were then shipped to Europe and Ireland and this is how the blight came to other countries. Once it arrived, it spread fast. On August 16, 1845, the Gardener's Chronicle reported about a blight with an unusual character on the Isle of Wight. A week later, Belgium would report a disease outbreak in potato crops. The British government remained optimistic. Only when harvest happened in October did the real scale of destruction show itself. Sir Robert Peel, Prime Minister, found the reports very alarming. The crop lost in 1845 is from one third to a half of cultivated acreage. Then in 1846, this skyrocketed to three quarters of the harvest being lost to blight. The first attack would hit rural Ireland and the worst with the first deaths from starvation being recorded. By 1847, seed potatoes were hard to come by. Hunger would continue in 1847. In 1848, 
yields were at two-thirds of the normal. Over three million Irish people would totally depend on potatoes for food at the time, so hunger was bound to happen from the famine. Corporation of Dublin would call upon the Queen to gather Parliament for money towards public works, especially railroads in Ireland. November 1845, the Duke of Leinster, Lord Conclury, Daniel O'Connell and Lord Mayor of Dublin went to Lord Hestonbury, who was Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. They asked him to open the ports, stop distillation, prohibit exports of food and give employment through public works. Hestonbury wasn't alarmed, thought it was an overreaction and that no immediate pressure was on the market. December 8, 1845, Daniel O'Connell would suggest remedies to avoid the upcoming disaster. A tenant right was such a remedy, suggesting giving the landlord a fair rent for the land, but also giving the tenant compensation for the money they put into the land improvements. O'Connell would suggest to do what Belgium were doing, as they were going through the same blight too. They shut their ports against exports, but opened to imports. This would keep Ireland with an abundance of food. O'Connell said only an Irish Parliament could provide food and employment for the people. He would urge the repeal of the Act of Union was needed and it was Ireland's only hope. The potato blight was from 1845 to 1851 and would be full of political confrontation. Asking for port closure to exports wasn't an unreasonable request. In 1782 to 1783, Ireland had experienced food shortage. Ports were closed so that Irish-grown food could be kept to feed the people. Food prices dropped because of this. Merchants would be angry and protest against this ban, but the government ignored and the protests continued. Because of this, many lived through the shortage. But in 1840s, no such ban happened. The British government did purchase £100,000 worth of maize and cornmeal in 1845, although it was done secretly. Due to bad weather, the first ship didn't arrive in Ireland until February 1846. The first to arrive was unground dried kernels. Irish mills couldn't mill these because of poor equipment, so a long and complicated milling process had to be created before it could be distributed. The cornmeal had to be cooked many times or would give terrible stomach pains. It also wasn't very popular with the Irish. They would call it Peel's Brimestone after the UK's Prime Minister. October 1845, Peel would recall Corn Law Towers on grain, which was keeping the price of bread high. This wasn't favoured by all and would split his party. Peel wouldn't get enough support on the subject either so he resigned in December. But a government was unable to be formed, so Peel was reappointed to the position. March would see Peel set up a programme of public works in Ireland, but in 1846 the famine would become worse and the repeal in the Corn Laws would do nothing to help the starving. The repeal again split the party, which led to Peel's fall from ministry. June 25th, the second reading of the Government Irish Coalition Bill was lost by 73 votes in the House of Commons by a combo of Whigs, Radical, Irish Repealers 
and protectionist conservatives. June 29th, Peel was forced to resign, and Lord John Russell, who was the Whig leader, would become Prime Minister. Russell would do little to help with the crisis. The Whigs were influenced by the economic system, laissez faire, which believed the market would provide the food needed. The Whigs refused to get involved with the movement of food to England. They would stop the previous government's food and relief work, which left hundreds of thousands with no access to work, money or food. The Whigs would introduce a new government programme of public works. By December 1846, it employed half a million, but would be impossible to control. January 1847, the Lazares Fair was dropped as it wasn't working. It would then turn to a mix of indoor and outdoor direct relief. The indoor would relate to workhouses through Irish poor laws, and outdoor was in regards to soup kitchens. The cost of the poor laws fell on the local landlords. Some would avoid this by evicting their tenants. The Poor Law Amendment Act was passed in June 1847. This would make it that the Irish property must support Irish poverty. Landowners in Ireland held in Britain were blamed for the famine, creating conditions that led to it. But the British government were also partly to blame. In the Poor Law, there would be a Gregory Clause which would prevent anyone who held at least one quarter acre from getting relief. So a farmer having sold all produce to pay rent and taxes had to apply for public outdoor relief. He wouldn't be able to get it until he delivered all his land to the landlord. This method of being ejected would be called passing paupers through the workhouse. A man went in, a pauper came out. These would drive many thousands of the la- off the land, 90,000 in 1849 and 104,000 in 1850. In 1849, the Encumbered Estate Act would come into effect. This would let landlord estates to be sell- sold off through auction if petitioned by creditors. Estates with debt would be auctioned at lower prices. The wealthy in Britain would buy these lands and would take a harsh approach to the tenants still renting. Rents were raised beyond what tenants could afford, so they were evicted. In their place would be large cattle grazing pastures. Many Irish would believe Ireland was producing enough food to feed the people during the famine, and that starvation was from the exports but statistics showed imports exceeded exports at the time of the famine. Grain would only start to make an impact from spring 1847. The amount of food exported in late 1846 was one-tenth the amount of potatoes lost to the blight. Maize would be imported and wheat. Four times as much wheat was imported into Ireland at the height of the famine as exported and much of the imported wheat was used to feed livestock and not people. Relief through the workhouse system was simply overwhelmed by the enormous scale and length of the famine. Large sums of money were donated by charities and people across the world. Religious and non-religious organisations would come to the victim's aid. £1.5 million or near £135 million today was given in contributions.
Landlords had to pay the rates of each tenant, whose yearly rent was £4 or under. Landlords with land overcrowded with poor tenants had huge bills. Many landlords would kick out the poor tenants in small plots, creating larger ones and renting them for over £4, therefore reducing the debt. 1846 would see small amounts of this, but in 1847 mass evictions came about. It's unknown how many, as it wasn't until 1849 that the police began to keep record. They recorded 250,000 people were officially evicted from 1849 to 1854. This is believed to be way underestimated, as voluntary surrenders weren't counted. And these voluntary surrenders weren't done in full honesty. The tenants would be pressured with small amounts of money to leave being led to believe that the workhouse would then take them in. The West of Clare would be the worst hit for evictions. Landlords would kick thousands out and flatten their homes. Mayo was next for worst evictions, accounting for 10% of all between 1849 and 1854. George Bigham, 3rd Earl of Lucan, was the most notorious for evictions. He would say he would not breed paupers to pay priests. He would go on to evict 2,000 tenants, then he would use the land as grazing farms. Revenge would come against the landlords, with seven being shot, six fatally during the end of 1847. Ten others were murdered, but they had no tenants. Fear of a rebellion would start. The Crime and Outrage Act would be passed in December 1847 to deal with this, sending troops to Ireland. From the famine, it's believed a million emigrated. The census in 1851 would give 967,908 people as long-distance emigrants. Short distance was mainly to Britain, with 200,000 emigrating. The famine would be a big reason for emigrating, but it wasn't the only one. A mass emigration can be traced back to mid-18th century. 250,000 would leave over 50 years. 1 million to 1.5 million left during 1815 to 1845, when Napoleon lost at Waterloo. Then in 1845 was the Great Famine. At the height of the famine, 250,000 people a year would emigrate most from the west of Ireland. Families wouldn't emigrate, but the younger members start to emigrate as a rite of passage. Those who left would send money home, allowing others in the family to leave. England, Scotland, Wales, North America and Australia were the places to emigrate from 1845 to 1850. Liverpool was the easiest to get to from Dublin, and in 1851, one quarter of a city's population would be Irish-born. Liverpool would soon be called Ireland's second capital. Liverpool would also be the only place outside Ireland to elect an Irish nationalist to the Parliament, who was T.P. O'Connor in 1885. 2020 would show that about three quarters of people in Liverpool came from Irish descent. 100,000 Irish went to Canada by boat in 1847. One of five would die from disease or malnutrition before reaching land. Ships were packed with people. The ships were poorly maintained and badly provisioned. These ships would become known as coffin ships. 
1851, census would show Toronto was over 50% Irish. In America, most Irish became city dwellers. With no money, the people would settle wherever the ship docked. Boston, New York City, Philadelphia and Baltimore would have one quarter of its population Irish by 1850. By 1854, nearly two million left Ireland because of evictions, starvations and harsh poor living conditions. It's unknown exactly how many died in the famine. It's believed to be many have died of disease, not starvation. Registration for birth, marriage and deaths weren't around then. The Catholic Church had records, but weren't up to date. 1851 census commissioners collected info about deaths in each family. They found 21,770 died from starvation and 400,720 died from disease. The diseases included fever, diphtheria, dysteria, cholera, smallpox and the flu. The commissioners would say these results weren't fully true and the deaths were probably much higher. The real figure is believed to be one to one and a half million. The greatest cause of death was thought to be from famine-induced ailments. Malnourished people were extremely vulnerable to infections. These infections included measles, diarrhea, TB, whooping cough and intestinal parasites. Fever would be the biggest cause of death. Fever and famine were closely related. The hungry from the famine would attend soup kitchens, food depots and overcrowded workhouses. Here would be the ideal place and conditions to spread typhus, typhoid and relapse in fever. The potato blight came back in 1879. By then, the rural or tenant farmer and labourers of Ireland began the Land War, which was one of the largest agrarian movements to take part in Europe in the 19th century. When it returned, the Land League was about, and this was led by Michael David. Michael was born during the Great Famine, and he would encourage a mass boycott of notorious landlords. But this soon would be suppressed. Reduction in the rate of homelessness and increased eroding of the landlord system meant the severity of this new short famine was limited. Opinion was sharply critical of the Russell government response and management of the famine. From the start, the government was accused of failure to understand the magnitude of it. Even after it recognised the severity of the famine, it still failed to address it. The British government has not apologised for its role in the famine, but in 1997, at a commemoration in Cork, Tony Blair, the UK Prime Minister, would send a message stating those who governed in London at the time failed these people through standing by while a crop failure turned into a massive human tragedy. The message was well received in Ireland and was taken as some sort of an apology from Britain. The famine remains a touchy subject in Ireland and its history. Debates are ongoing whether the British government response to the blight, still exporting food, crops and livestock constitutes as genocide. Most historians rejected this claim. In 1996, the US state, New Jersey, added the famine to the Holocaust and genocide curriculum in schools. An Irish historian, Cormac O'Gradoch, rejected the genocide claim. Cormac would state, genocide includes murderous intent, 
and it must be said that not even the most bigoted and racist commentators of the day sought the extermination of the Irish. He said the claim of genocide overlooks the enormous challenge facing relief agencies, both central and local, public and private. He would say it was a case of neglect, not genocide. National Famine Commemoration Day is held each year in Ireland on a Sunday in May. Memorials are scattered across Ireland. In Dublin, at Custom House Quay, stands tin sculptures of people appearing to walk towards a ship on Dublin Quayside. Annual Great Famine Walk in Mayo started in 1988. It's led by many notable people. It takes part on the first or second Saturday of May and links the memory of the Great Famine with a con- contemporary human rights issue. Thanks for listening. Next time I'll be talking about Susan Smith, an American woman who murdered her two children in 1994 by drowning them. Until then, this was the good, the bad and the pure evil. <laughs>